word with you again this morning. We'll continue in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through 39. I'm going to close out this chapter this morning, and I'll give you time to get your Bibles open and turn to the text. It's good to hear the flipping of pages. Thanks, Corbin. All right. Matthew 15, beginning in verse 29. Matthew records, and he says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, crippled, healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Well, for some time, my kids have been begging that we get them a dog. Uh, They have noticed that their grandparents have dogs, their friends have dogs, the neighbors have dogs, in fact, some of you have dogs, and it is unfair that they do not have dogs, right? Is that kind of how it goes? Children are slightly nodding, a little bit more embarrassed that I'm calling them out. Uh, But I've been messing with them at the dinner table as they are making their passionate pleas and their cases for a dog. And I say, okay, yeah, I'm sure we can get a dog. But first, we've got to get a dog house. And they look at me perplexed. They're like, why would we need a dog house? I said, because dogs live outside and they need a house. And they're like, no, the dogs will be in our house. I was like, no, they can't be in our house. There'll be fur everywhere. They'll chew up your toys. They'll slobber on your pillow. It'll be disgusting. That's why they go outside. And they're like, Daddy, it's cold outside. I said, that's why God gave them fur. God knew what he was doing. And they continue to go back and forth. And, they, and I said, well, maybe we can work it out. They can sleep in the garage for a time. Essentially, I've tried to paint the picture, if you're familiar with the 90s movie Beethoven, that whole scene with the great uh, St. Bernard who comes in and wrecks their house, and the dad, I play the part of the dad who absolutely doesn't want the dog, but the family does. We're kind of living that out in our house right now as they're trying to wear me down, but I think I'm outnumbered because Sarah is on their side, but we'll see. 
And we all know what mama want, mama gets, right? Okay? All right. We'll see. <laughs> well, the picture that Matthew paints for us in this text is, is, is like walking into your kitchen and you see dogs are all over the place. They are, and just imagine that scene. They are licking up the food. They are breaking all the rules. The, the kitchen or the fridge doors is open, and they're just shoveling everything out. They're all over your couches, shedding. They're ripping the, the, the pillows. That is the picture that we have here. And you might be saying, Chase, are you reading the same text that we just read? Because I don't see anything about dogs anywhere, let alone dogs doing what you're saying. What we see here in our text is really something that Jesus has been alluding to all through chapter 15, but is now becoming more uh, in play here. He's setting the stage for what will later be the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. Gentiles, if you're not familiar with that language, Gentile just means you're not a Jew. Gentiles were non-Jews, and, and they were viewed by the Jews as messy dogs. In fact, we saw this last Sunday as Jesus' interaction with the Canaanite woman, if you remember. And Jesus uh, told her it is not right to take the children's bread, the children are the Jews, and throw it to the dogs, meaning it's not right to give what is Israel's blessings and give it to the Gentiles. That's not how it should go. And Jesus is reiterating a common perception among the Jewish people that the, the Gentiles were a worthless people. The, the Israelites, they were the children of God, but the Gentiles, they were nothing but dogs. And not your, your pet that you want to have. You're the, you're the scavenger who, do, who belongs in the streets getting maybe the scraps of the children. And when we come here to verses 29 through 39... If you're familiar with Matthew, you're, you might be saying, didn't we already hear this story? Back in chapter 14, if you remember, you can turn back there. Right after the, the story of the death of John the Baptist, we see that Jesus went to a desolate place and the crowds were following him and he had compassion on them. He healed their sick and then he didn't want them to go away hungry. And so he says, what food do we have? And there are loaves and there are fishes and he multiplies them, right? And they all went away satisfied. Well, isn't that what we just read here in chapter 15? Why is the story repeating itself? Well, there are some changes. In chapter 14, it was 5,000 men, not including women and children. This time, it's 4,000. In chapter 14, it was five loaves and two fish. This time, it's seven loaves and a few small fish. Uh, there were 12 baskets left over in chapter 14. There's only seven baskets left over here. But those are really minor details. At the end of the day, Jesus is showing his divine power, isn't he? And he's multiplying the loaves. And it's as if maybe, did Matthew just forget and think that he hadn't told us that Jesus could do this and he just needs to remind us? No, there's a point. There's a point. And one of the significant differences between the feeding in chapter 14 and now the feeding here in chapter 15 is the audience. In chapter 14, Jesus was feeding predominantly and almost certainly exclusive Jewish community. In chapter 15, it's the dogs. It's the Gentiles. And it's been leading us up to this. And so in a vivid way, Jesus is showing 
that even the dogs of the nations are welcome at his table. That's what we're seeing here. And this universal appeal to the nations has been hinted at already, as we've seen in chapter 15 with Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders. And so today I'm kind of summarizing what has been maybe an undercurrent theme that has been there, but I haven't really drawn out over the last two Sundays. And this is what was going on when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees about their traditions. You remember they were upset with Jesus because his disciples do not wash their hands before they eat. And this wasn't just a hygiene thing. This was a ceremonial cleansing thing. And the Jews had lots of rules, not only what you need to do before you eat, but even what you could eat. And if you could think about that, that would have a, a, a severe implications for who could eat at your table, right? Gentile dogs could never come to your table. You, your rules basically exclude them. They can't because they're not Jews. And Jesus confronts the, well, at least the Pharisees confront Jesus, but Jesus turns the table and he lets them know that, that they are misunderstood. They have actually gone beyond what the scriptures teach. They have added to the word of God. And what they have primarily misunderstood is that what truly defiles a person, that is what makes a person unclean, a person who, who is not right with God, is not what is on the outside. It's actually what's on the inside. He said, the true thing that defiles a person is what is in their heart. Now, when we think about these debates between the Jews and the Gentiles, I think they're rather foreign to us. We, we are Gentiles. And at this point in the, the story of redemption, as, as history is unfolding, predominantly Christians are non-Jews. And so we don't feel the tension that this text has that would have certainly be felt um, by the first audience who had read it. It would have felt like, oh my word, I walked in the house and the dogs are taking over the place. But we don't really notice it because we're the dogs. <laughs> like it's no big deal to the dog, right? And that's all of us feasting, breaking all the rules, <laughs> at least in the Jewish mind. But just because we may not um, identify with that tension doesn't mean that we um, don't develop our own rules sometimes, our own things, our own culture, our own code of conduct, that if you do not meet these things, well, you can't come to our table. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with that and develop what I like to say are litmus tests, gateways, if you will. You must be all these things before you can come be with us. And I say, well, what are you talking about? I think at times, even as, as born-again believers, we can fall back into the same self-righteous error that the Israelites did. In fact, the Scripture tells us that their lives and their, their story were written as examples to us so that we would not do what they do. Why would that be a problem? Because just like us, they too were in Adam, and they sinned. And their hearts are just as wicked as ours. And so it may not manifest itself uh, as antagonism towards the Gentiles, but it can manifest itself in other ways. Those people, as sometimes we, we call them, the, whatever that proverbial saying may be, those people. And we can fall into that error and start to view or treat others like dogs. You wouldn't want in your house. Now, we may not separate over hand-washing ceremonies or ethnicity, but maybe we are guilty of drawing 
other lines, other external things that are, okay, if you're really a Christian, you do these things. If you're really a Christian, you act like this. You adhere to these cultural norms. You, you do these type of things. And so, for instance, maybe we categorize people by economic status, education level, political persuasions, non-essential doctrines, and other things that like define who we are. This is who we are. And the danger can be that we promote those things that we value and think are good and oftentimes are maybe even right, but they become litmus tests that everyone says, well, unless you are all those things, you're not welcome there. And you say, well, we would never say that. I would never do that. We're not like that. And one of the things that the scripture says is one way to search your heart to know if you battle with that is who is around your dinner table? Now, usually that's your family, right? That's nothing to be guilty of. That's, that could be your friends. But is no one who would ever fall outside of your categories ever at your dinner table? Could you ever fellowship with them? Because that becomes a real where the rubber meets the road. Are there people you won't associate with? And the meal just has this intimate expression of that because they don't fit Therefore, they're not welcome. This actually was something that even Paul had to confront Peter about. Peter knew intellectually, he knew theologically what the truth was, and yet he withdrew from the Gentiles and he only would eat with the Jews. And it was social pressure. Those things happen to us. We have our own categories, our own things, people we just feel uncomfortable to be around. We have to watch it. Who would we share a meal with? Well, here in this passage, Jesus shows us that he shares a meal with the dogs. <laughs> and in doing so, he signals that all people are welcome to share in his blessings. The bread that belongs to the children is welcome for all. Everyone can become a child of God at his table. And what are these blessings? The blessings of salvation, the blessings of worship, and the blessing of fellowship. Blessing of fellowship. And this is what I want us to see as we consider chapter 15, verses 29 through 39. Well, before Jesus feeds this Gentile crowd, we see he, he performs many healings, as you look here. And, and these healings are, are reminiscent of what we read in Isaiah 35, the redemption that would come when, when Yahweh would visit his people. We would see uh, the, the blind seeing, the lame walking, the mute speaking. And in fact, this is exactly what begins happening. Jesus' ability to heal the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute speaks certainly of his divine power. He is Yahweh incarnate. He's the one true God who has come to deliver his people. And in doing so, we, we should be thinking, oh my, these are the promises of the Old Testament coming to fruition. The King, the Messiah, he is here. So it's interesting. Where are they? They're in a desert, right? And even the disciples say, where are we going to get food in this desolate or this desert place? And yet it seems to be like, oh, there is manna from heaven. When wherever Jesus is, every surrounding becomes luscious, if you want to put it that way. He's the creator God, and he's able to demonstrate that here and what he's able to do in this miracle. 
But these promises, these things of, of the reality of the blind seeing the crippled, walking the lame, being healed, the mute speaking, these were promises made to Israel and as they were crying out from the oppression that they had had from unbelieving Israel and the nations. And yet now what we're seeing is that these promises are happening among the nations. They're happening among these Gentile dogs. And what glorious truth this text is teaching us is that no matter who you are, no matter what your life has been characterized by, what you have done, what your background is, what nationality you have come from, how you were raised, guess what? If you come to Christ, you're welcome at the table. Do you realize that? What glorious truth this is. That if you are in Christ, you, you not only are welcome at the table, but you get the same plate. You get the same silverware. You get the same meal. You don't get the scraps. You don't have to sit at the kids' table at Thanksgiving. You get to sit at the real deal table. Now, some of you are like, I like the kids' table. I personally do too. But in this analogy, you want to be at the main table. And this is the glorious truth that we're seeing here. And this is what Israel did not realize. They were blinded by their self-righteousness, their assumption and presumption upon God's grace because they were doing the right things. And yet their hearts were far from him. The things that separate one from God that Israel didn't realize, they weren't the things that you can see with your eyes. They weren't the things that you could touch with your hands. They weren't the things that where you could say, aha, do you see those people, what they're doing? Those people are far from God. Because Jesus continually reminds us all the way from the Sermon on the Mount, looks can be deceiving. There can be one who looks like they are very close to God. They have the right doctrine. They wear the right clothes. They vote for the right candidate. They do all the right things. And yet, they're murderers of the heart. They are lusting in their heart. And what the Father can see in secret is that they do not know him. And yet, there can be these other people like this Canaanite woman who would have been everything wrong. Think of the wrong person. She's it. And yet, she's close. It's one of the things about God's grace that you learn throughout the scriptures. It's surprising. It's surprising. God gives grace to the humble, and he opposes the proud no matter who they are, even if they are Israel. And this is what they don't realize. And what I want you to see is that this is one of the things that the church has struggled all the way from the beginning. And this is something that we'll always struggle with because we like to make things really nice and clean around our standards, but yet the Scripture's constantly pushing us to realize that actually there's only one requirement to become a child. Put your faith in Christ. One. And it'll revolutionize your life, but it doesn't mean they'll look like you either. I want you to go to Acts chapter 10. This is where what we see here in this meal is really significantly brought to light. 
and takes shape in Acts chapter 10. If you're familiar with this, this is where Peter has had a dream about eating certain foods. Why about the foods? Because the foods were what divided people. And if you had rules about what foods you could eat, well, then certain people can't come to the table. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter ends up confessing what we're seeing Jesus do in Matthew 15. And in verse 34, that's where I want you to to put here. What has Peter come to understand? After this vision of the Lord telling him, go eat the meat, that he says, oh, I'd never eat anything unclean. After this lesson, and, and he's preaching to some Gentiles, he says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, look at that, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now here's the thing. You might say, does what is right. He's about to go to some Gentiles. They don't do everything that's right, according to Jewish standards. But they do what is right in God's eyes. And you know what that was? They loved people. And they feared God. They were humble. That's the one characteristic that defines the people of God. They fear God. And they love people. Well, guess what happened? We, we keep going on in verse 44 that while Peter is preaching... We see the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed. They're utterly shocked. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. How could they, how could they receive the promise that was given to Israel, the Holy Spirit. They're not circumcised, one of the rules. They're shocked. And that's one of the signs that you know the Lord. You have the Holy Spirit. You bear the fruit of the Spirit. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ cannot confess Jesus as the Christ. And so that's the, that's the line. Do they confess Jesus as the Christ? Yes, there's some real theology there. But it doesn't have to be all the way developed. doesn't say we don't want to develop them. But the front door can't be anything other than Christ. It can't be anything. And it shocks some of us just to hear that. Just as it shocked these Jews. You go on to chapter 11. Peter now goes back to the church in Jerusalem, which had been no doubt all Jews. And some there are upset because they hear, you ate with Gentiles. They still don't understand this yet. And so Peter has to recount and tell them the story of what happened. And and if you go to chapter 11, verse 17, Peter's explaining what happens, and he concludes with this. He says, if then God gave the same gift to them, that's the gift of the Holy Spirit, as he gave also to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? What does he mean by that? By imposing my externals on them. Who was I? If they truly have the Holy Spirit, they confess Jesus is the Christ, who was I to add to that at this point? 
And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's the same reality which is beginning here in chapter 15 of Matthew's gospel. This is what, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a seed of what is to happen. Jesus is, is indicating that he's going to save all sorts of people. And he does it in the most intimate way. He welcomes them to his table. And I wonder, I was thinking about it in my own life. Are, there are people, because of whatever code of conduct I have that I, I don't want to associate with, that I don't want at my table. And yet, what I need to understand is that I was that person. <laughs> and Jesus loved me and brought me to the table. And if he hadn't, I wouldn't have come to know him. Matthew shows us that the blessing of salvation in Christ has come to the nations. And as a result, guess what happens? They worship. And we see the blessing of worship. When the crowd witnessed, you see there in our text, if you're not back there, Matthew 15, verse 31, the crowd wondered. They were in amazement. Their, their jaws dropped down when they saw the redemption, the, the rescuing, the deliverance, if you want to put it that way, that Jesus had, had brought these that they had brought to him. And what do we see that they do? Last sentence. They glorified the God of Israel. Even how that phrase lets you know that that's Gentile. They glorified a God who was not of their nation. And guess what? You and I worship a Jewish Messiah. We sang it. Jesus Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew for anointed one. We call him the Christ. That's just the Greek way of saying it. He's both Messiah. He's Christ. We worship a Jewish Savior. We have been grafted in. We're like the wild weeds Paul says in Romans 11, and we've been grafted into the, the, the flourishing root of Israel. We've partaking in their blessings. And this is what is happening here. They join in the worship of the true and living God, which is the God of Israel. See, the mark of the true children of God isn't your ethnicity. It isn't your social standing. It isn't the, the codes of norm that we bring in, even conservative circles. It's do you worship the true and living God? That's it. It doesn't mean there aren't other important things, but at the end of the day, the true children of God, Jew or Gentile, are those who worship. And such worship is a blessing. Did you know that? To worship the true and living God is a blessing. Do you find worship a blessing? Do you love to worship with God's people? Do you love to worship the God of Israel, who is Jesus the Christ? You might be saying, I don't. Why is that a blessing? Maybe you feel like it's a duty. What's worship? When you think about it, worship is enjoying God and responding in praise and adoration for his great salvation he has brought you. 
But I want you to see, it's enjoining him. It's enjoying the blessings that he has provided, the redemption that is ours in, in Christ. It is savoring him and loving him and, and enjoying him. See, those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that's what's happening here. What do they do? You respond in worship. Thank you, Jesus. You are sweet. You are awesome. You are kind to me. And that love of God that has re- you have received that has been poured into your heart, oh, it flows out and it manifests itself because you'll start to treat others as he treated you. Aren't you glad he didn't have this list before you could come to his table? This is why the Psalms declare. Have you ever read the Psalms? And what often the psalmist is longing for, I long to dwell in your courts for an hour, now forever. I long to, to walk in your ways. I long to ascend your holy hill. I long to stand in your presence. Why? What is it that, that the psalmist seems to understand that so oftentimes we don't? understand that their joy, every good thing comes from our Heavenly Father above. They are tastes, they are expressions of His goodness and His blessing that come to us. And when we understand that, oh, we understand that whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, you can do to the glory of God because you see them as just signposts. They're just tastes. They're just, they're just um, shadows of the goodness that is actually just flowing from him. Oh my, if this wonderful blessing that I receive here on earth is this wonderful that I love, how much greater is the one who created it and who shares all things with me? That's what we're seeing here. See, everyone worships. Did you know that? Everyone here worships. Everyone out there worships. We worship what we enjoy and think we cannot live without. Worship becomes a blessing when you realize our Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, is our joy. And we can't live without Him. And so by God's grace in Christ, He's brought us into sweet fellowship with Him. Whereby we're not ashamed of Him, and guess what? He's not ashamed of us. Do you know that? He's not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. Many other people might be ashamed of you, but your Savior's not. He's not ashamed of you. And we worship and glorify him because he welcomed us into the joy of of knowing him. And we tangibly share in this joy of worship through fellowship with him. That's our final point here. I think that's the, the gist of what we should be drawing from this second feeding, if you will. After healing the Gentile crowds, Jesus shares a meal with them. And just like he shared with the Jews in chapter 14, here he has compassion on them. The same compassion that he had for the so-called sons and daughters of the kingdom, he now shows to the outcasts of the kingdom. He shows compassion on them, and he says, I'm unwilling that they would go away from me hungry. Do you know that? This morning, he's unwilling that you would go away hungry. That you would not meet with him and leave satisfied. 
And so Jesus performs essentially the same miracle we saw in chapter 14. And this event, if you, if you think about it, it it's reminiscent of, of another event. If you think about Moses leading Israel in the wilderness, what happened? They're in the desert, right? They've been redeemed. Jesus has already redeemed these people. Now they're in the desert with him. And, and manna comes down from heaven, right? God rained down manna to preserve Israel until they could get to the promised land. Jesus says, I don't want them to leave hungry, lest on their way home, they faint, they pass out, they die. Jesus is showing that he not only redeems his people, he sustains them. He sustains you. He preserves you to the end. We are like Israel now, wandering through the wilderness, and we must live on the bread of life. We must come to him and feast on him and enjoy him because if we withdraw, we will, we will faint. We will run weary and we'll die. One of the great hopes of Israel in the Old Testament was that when the Messiah would come, when, when the king would come, there would be a great messianic banquet, a big feast, a wedding feast, if you will, a feast of all feasts. You wanted to be at this feast. You wanted to be at that table. You wanted to share and sit at the table of the king. This was the messianic meal. And here, Jesus brings the dogs to the table. Can you imagine? Have you ever been to a wedding or a big fancy meal? Can you imagine someone showing up and bringing the dogs to the meal? That's what's happening here. That's what's going on. And Jesus has actually already spoken of this. Why don't you go back just to chapter 8. Jesus has already shown what is happening here and anticipated it. In chapter 8, you may remember the faith of the centurion. He, he's a Gentile. He's a soldier. He's an outcast. He, he supports the wrong political party. Everything. He's not right. And yet he has more faith than Israel. He has more faith than them. And Jesus, marveling at his face, verse 10, says, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's Jesus talking about? tell you it's the one who has faith in me and those who might have it all right may find themselves not at the table because they don't actually believe in me they've trusted everything else so some of them are going to find out on that day that they don't have an invitation to the banquet as the dogs roll in they thought they were children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They showed that they had another father because their hearts were far from the one and true living God. Jesus knows that by and large, Israel is going to reject him. They loved their structures. They loved their rules. They hated the Gentiles. This is the thing that gets Jesus in so much trouble. In fact, it's the thing that gets most Christian pastors in trouble is when you open the door past our preferences. 
Oh, it's a slippery slope. Don't you know those people do these things and you will open up for all this immorality and it goes and goes and goes. And aren't you glad Jesus didn't say, yeah, you can't come because you don't yet measure up. This is a danger for religious people. This was the danger of Israel. And in fact, Paul warns the Gentile church. He says, you stand in fear too. For you can be cut off. There's a warning. You, you think you'd, now the tables have turned. You're the dominant. You presume you have God's grace. And you can begin acting just like that. Well, don't think that you can presume upon God's grace. Stay in the faith. The simplicity of the gospel. Jesus knows that Israel will ultimately reject him. Later, he's going to look upon Jerusalem. He's going to go, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would have none of it. There's going to be a parable about attendance, and he's hired these servants, and they all were unfaithful. They didn't produce the fruits keeping with repentance, so he gives it to another nation keeping with repentance. What's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the true people of God. You will recognize them by their fear and their humility. And each time God's people gather in Christ's name, guess what we do? We share in his benefits. We're sharing in him. And you know that. That's why you're here. There isn't any other place you would rather be. You want to be among God's people, sharing in his blessings, sharing in the family, the fellowship. You know this is sustaining you. There's nothing else. This, the greatest threat to your life is not to be here. Because you know the joy and blessings of the fellowship of Christ. But this isn't just pictured when we sing our songs on Sunday morning. Or when we hear the word preached, although it is. It is also when we gather around the Lord's table. Why do you think... He brings us to the table. And here we do that once a month. Why do we come to the table? Because not only is it symbolic of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for us, but it also is symbolic that all these people, all these backgrounds, come and share at the same table. Just share in the same fellowship. And guess what? This might be a newsflash for some of you. There's people here who are going to vote for the guy you don't want Tuesday. Are you okay with that? Do you still want to eat at the dinner table with them? Because sometimes the way we talk, I don't think we do. And we need to be aware that not everybody in this room comes from the same background or sees things the same way. It doesn't mean everybody's right. I'm not saying that either. But what I am telling you is you have brothers and sisters in Christ who you have maybe communicated with. You would not be my friend if you knew how I was going to vote. And that's a shame. Because that's not how Jesus treats you. Well, each time we gather, brothers and sisters, what are we doing? We're basically saying, I don't have it together. But my hope is in the one who does. My hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. What basis do you come to him? I hope we're like the Canaanite woman who says, I got nothing. I got nothing. 
And even the things that I think I may have, they get me nowhere with you. You know who's welcome at Jesus' table? The one who says, I'm unworthy. And if you embrace that, guess what? You will find you can live with a lot of people. You can do that. You can bear long-suffering with them, patient with them, because you understand how long-suffering and patient the Lord has been with you. That's the thing I constantly forget. Because <laughs> I forget. I think everybody should be like me and think exactly like me. And if they did, the world would be perfect. And some of you are like, that would be dreadful. <laughs> and it would be. It would be absolutely dreadful. But thanks God, I'm not the ruler. You're not the ruler. He is, right? He is. So the only basis that any of us can come and share the blessings of Christ is whether or not they've come to him. As the great hymn says, through whom all blessings what? Flow. All blessings flow through Christ. Not through anything else. And so I'm going to pray for us and Pastor Brian's going to come and lead us in song. And I want us to sing. I want us to think. I want us to confess. As we confess, God, you reign. You reign over everything. And may we walk out of this place saying, we want all peoples to come to the table. And the only litmus test that we have is the only one that Christ has, that you come through Christ. That you come through Christ. Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord, we're reminded of your great mercy and kindness to us. Lord, we learn here that, Lord, you're not just the Savior of Israel. You're not the Savior of America or just the Savior of America. No, you're the Savior of all nations. Even nations that we would not want to live in. You're the savior of those people. And you are bringing us all into one people. And we will one day share as one people at the one table of the messianic banquet. Lord, we long for that day. Where, where blind spots are removed, where, where hurts are healed, where loneliness and sighing and weariness is no more. Lord, we long for that day. And Lord, we're thankful that you remind us and you feed us with the food that sustains us from your word today, that these things are true in you and in no other. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing. Your glory shine.